Very good morning, Amokyo, uh, to this church family. Morning. Good to see all of you on this uh, very cold morning. Bring you warm greetings. May the Lord indeed warm all of us up, not just uh, physically, but with His Spirit as well. And so we continue this week uh, with our sermon series about knowing God. Our district superintendent, Reverend Ruben Ng, preached during our anniversary service of God as Rewarder. In case you missed that sermon, it's always up on our YouTube channel. You can always Google our AMKMC. You can also go to our website or various podcast channels to catch up on some of the messages the Lord is speaking to us through uh, the speakers. So this week, we will continue to look at God as the one who restores. God as the one who restores. Come, let us pray as we begin. Jesus, we welcome you. Indeed, Lord, you are our great restorer, redeemer. Rewarder. And so Jesus, come and do your work, your mighty work once again in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now the Japanese have this wonderful art they call kintsugi. kintsugi. I hope I pronounce it correctly. Kintsugi. Uh, it literally means golden joinery. It's the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery by mending the areas of breakage with uh, lacquer, dusted or mixed with powdered gold, silver or platinum. So this is just an example. I can't do this, right? But I'm just giving you an example. Now, if we are honest, we should recognize that we are all broken people. Some of us come from broken homes, broken marriages. Some of us experience brokenness because of poor personal choices. Some of us are broken by the sins of others, whether you are bullied, abused, mistreated, Others of us are broken by chronic illnesses or very unfortunate life circumstances. Now, there are just too many ways in which you are broken because of this fallen world. And I'm pretty sure all of us have also, you know, at some point in our lives, broke a glass, right? Something that's important to us and we broke it, whether it's a cup, a plate, a bowl or something like that. And all of us, you know, probably have a kind of experience. And some of us, unfortunately, are clumsier than others break more things than, than usual. And each time we break something, I'm not sure how you, what it's like for you, I always warn and tell others, don't come near me. <laughs> don't come near me. Especially to the younger ones, the children, stay away. Why? We don't want them to be cut by the broken pieces. Is that not correct? I will never forget you know, this P5 boy who first came to my Sunday school class many years ago. For the first year, maybe even two to three years, he scolded vulgarities. He deliberately provoked. He fought with his Sunday school friends. So much so that other parents started pulling their children out of the Sunday school class. Why? They didn't want their children to be badly influenced by this boy or traumatized by this boy. But why did this boy act the way he did? His father actually died very early. And his mom, who was at first incarcerated, later on when she was released from prison, abandoned him. His only caregiver was his grandmother, who clearly was not able to handle this very ill-tempered boy, whose basic need for unconditional parental love was never met. So why was this boy like that? Over the years of ministry, I realized this reality. Hurt people hurt people. (laughs) People who are hurt, they are like broken pieces on the floor. Inevitably, they will hurt other people. Again, if we're honest, we will realize that we are all broken and hurt. And unless we come to Jesus, 
the one who will perform this spiritual kintsugi in our lives, I'm afraid we will just continue to hurt others, even if it's unintentional, just like those broken pieces on the floor, they don't intentionally seek to hurt others, but it's just simply the way they are. John chapter 8 records a fascinating story of a restoration uh, by Jesus. And here we have a woman caught in adultery. Rather familiar passage, so I don't have to read the whole text to us at this point. A woman caught in adultery, she was brought to Jesus for Jesus to pass a verdict in this scenario. There are some questions in our heads. Why did she commit adultery? Was it because her husband was the first one to commit adultery? And so she was doing it as part of revenge? Was it because her husband neglected her? Or was she simply unable to hold back her passions? What about the other person who is guilty in this adultery affair? Did he lose his interest in his own wife? Or was he just sexually promiscuous? In fact, where is the adulterer? Where is he? If the woman was really caught in adultery, shouldn't the guy be also dragged along? Why was it the only woman? Why is it the only the woman who was brought before Jesus? Why so unfair? <laughs> Why is life so unfair? Verse 6 makes it very clear that the Pharisees intended to trap Jesus with this situation. But even so, you've got to think, why would the woman be willing to pay the price of being stoned to death just to be part of an elaborate scheme by the Pharisees? Would she be so willing to sacrifice her life to set up a trap, to trap Jesus? So many unanswered questions in this passage. But we know that it's a trap. Because if Jesus, on one hand, decided to pardon the woman, the Pharisees will accuse him. How dare you break Moses' law? Moses' law commands the adulteress to be stoned. On the other hand, if he decides not to pardon the woman, they will accuse him of not being compassionate and merciful, traits which uh, Jesus has consistently demonstrated when he was on earth in his ministry so far. So WWJD. What would Jesus do in this situation? To stone or not to stone? That is the question. And quite frankly, I tell you, both answers will get Jesus into trouble. In fact, as long as Jesus passed any form of judgment, whether to stone or not, he will be accused of being an unlawful judge because it is not his place to pass official judgment and verdict. He is merely a teacher. He is neither the Roman governor, neither is he part of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. He is in no position to pass judgment at all. And so if whatever judgment he makes, it will mean his doom. So WWJD, what would Jesus do? The Bible tells us that Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. Many people try to guess what Jesus wrote. And quite frankly, I have no idea and no way of proving anyone can be right or not. Some postulate that Jesus wrote the name of the missing adulterer. Whoa. Others suggested he wrote down the sins of the Pharisees. I mean, you can make your own guess. But for me, what Jesus wrote actually is not important. But the two actions that Jesus did is what's important. Because that's the phrase, these two actions is what's repeated. And if you do any form of Bible study, the basic rule is whatever is repeated is important. And verses 6 and 8 records the same two actions. And I believe that's where the emphasis is, not on what he wrote, but what he did. And so virtually every uh, scholar recognizes the artistry, the sophistication behind John's gospel. 
John is a very deliberate author when he wrote his gospel. For example, there are seven I am sayings of Jesus in the gospel of John. There are seven miracles. John often uses the word seeing in the sense of believing. If you see means you believe. So there is always a lot more than what meets the eye. This is a superficial reading. There's always a lot of thought behind what John is writing. And so in this case, may I suggest the act of bending down is not so much just so that Jesus can write on the sand. That's obvious, right? You need to bend down to write on the ground. Rather, the symbolic meaning behind it is a demonstration of humility. Jesus bending down or stooping down is a demonstration of humility that the God who restores is willing to go all the way down in order to raise us up. It's an act of humility. The passage later on tells us, again, if you read your Bibles closely, don't believe everything that you see on those gospel videos. For example, the woman was left standing there after all the Pharisees left. So the videos or the pictures like to depict the woman on the ground, right? But the scripture text tells us that the woman was actually standing there after all the Pharisees left. And so for Jesus to bend down or to stoop down, is to go at a level that is lower than the woman. He's stooping down, bending down, while the woman who is caught in adultery is still standing there. Now, do you know that this verb that is used in this context is also the very same word used by John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1, verse 7, when he said of Jesus, I am not worthy, John the Baptist said, I am not worthy to bend down and to untie the sh- his shoes the sandals, to untie his sandals. That's the same word. John the Baptist does not consider himself worthy enough to bend down, to even untie his sandals. Logos Bible Software further defines this verb as to bend the body downward and forward so as to pick up something. The sense of this word is not just to bend down physically, but with a purpose, to pick something up to raise something up. And so this bending down, as I said, is not just a physical act. It is symbolic of Jesus' willingness to humble himself in order to raise and restore this woman. Now let's ponder about this for a minute. I'm pretty sure none of us will dispute the idea that God is a great God, is almighty God, he's a God who restores, he's capable of doing anything, even raising the dead. None of us will dispute this idea. Surely he's more than capable of, you know, where he is, standing up as this strong, almighty God and just pick up something from the floor just as we can pick up a piece of rubbish, right, easily. A bag or a bottle we can pick up easily because we are strong and mighty compared to whatever we're holding. But a God who is willing to stoop down, to go so low, just to pick people up, just to raise this woman up, to pick us up. Wow. That is the miracle. It's not that he's almighty and can just do it. Ah, that's great. But where we stand in awe is a God who was stooped so low to raise us up. A God who will become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, it's one thing for me as a pastor, you know, to, to counsel broken people. It is quite another thing to experience their brokenness in order to bring restoration. Very different, right? I can counsel them from a distance. But God is a God 
who comes into our brokenness in order to restore us, to identify with our brokenness. And so later on, when we come to the communion table, don't gloss over this common phrase, the body of Christ, broken to make us whole. Here is a God who not only stoops down, but allows his own body to be broken so that we might be made whole. Jesus didn't save us through his strength. That's still amazing, right? But what is even more amazing is he's saving, he's him saving us through his weakness. His body broken to make us whole. Wow. Let's return to the story. If the first act of bedding down is the symbolic act of humility, the second act of writing is the symbolic act of authority. First act is humility. Second act is authority. The scripture says, you know, Jesus wrote in the sand using his finger. John didn't purposely, I didn't previously use the word finger. <laughs> no, there is a great meaning behind him using those words. In the Old Testament, there are only four instances where God's finger was specifically mentioned. Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, Pharaoh's magicians, when they couldn't replicate the miracle you know, of the plagues of nets, they, they testified, this is the finger of God. And then second, Exodus chapter 31, verses eight, uh, 18, and also in Deuteronomy 9, verse 10, when the Lord finished speaking to Moses on, on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets, the tablets of the covenant law, and the tablets of stone were inscribed by the finger of God. Third time, Psalm 8, uh, verse 3, the heavens are the work of God's fingers. Creation are the works of God's hand. Daniel chapter 5, verse 5, King Belshazzar trembled as God's finger wrote the words which ended his reign. And so these are the four instances in the Old Testament where God's finger comes into the picture. Each of them awesome or mighty. And so when Jesus wrote on the ground, pardon the pun here, but John is pointing <laughs> pointing to Jesus as the miracle worker. He's the miracle worker, as in Exodus chapter 8. He is the deliverer, right? As Moses led the people out of Israel, so Jesus will lead his people out of sin, out of Egypt, sorry. Moses led the people out of Egypt. Jesus will lead his people out of sin. Jesus is the lawgiver, He's the ultimate lawgiver. He is the one who creates. And finally, in Daniel chapter 5, verse 5, it points to him as the righteous judge. And so the God who restores is not only humble, but he's also authoritative. Many people cannot see how these two can come together. But this is who God is, always holding the two tensions, uh, the, the two ends in tension. He's humble, but yet fully authoritative. And his authority, in his authority, he does not lord it over others. He does it in a way that is humble. And so in two simple acts, Jesus rebuts the Pharisees. He is more than able as God, as the lawgiver, to pass judgment. But he chooses not to pass judgment. Instead, he says, let anyone who is without sin cast the first stone. And so in these two acts, he can show to the woman as well as the Pharisees, humility and authority. But yet he chooses not 
to exert his authority by simply saying, let anyone without sin cast the first stone. Upon hearing this, the Pharisees took their leave one by one, starting from the eldest, then to the youngest. The Pharisees knew that Jesus uh, had uncovered their trap. More importantly, the Pharisees knew that Jesus was 100% right. No one is without sin, as the scripture testifies, and as their own experience testifies, and so they left one by one. So family and friends, are you feeling broken or messed up for any reason this morning as you come into the house of the Lord, as you come with God's people? The account in John chapter 8 tells us it doesn't really matter how we got into our broken situation. Just like it doesn't really give us answers to our questions. Why was the woman there but not the adulterer and so many unanswered questions? Maybe you were an innocent victim. Maybe you brought the trouble upon yourself by being an active participant or a passive participant. Maybe you were bullied by others. You were suffering the wrongs of others just like this woman was suffering uh, the accusation by the Pharisees. Whatever the reason it may be that we are broken, whether it's by ourselves, by others, by circumstances, it really doesn't matter because at the end of the day, Jesus didn't even bother investigating the cause of brokenness. He simply restored the woman through his humility and his authority as God. As God, the one who always restores. We join now the account in verse 10. Jesus straightened up. And ask her, see, <laughs> Jesus was bending out and he straightened up. There's also a theological meaning here, but we will skip that for today. Women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. But go now and live your life of sin. Stop living in sin, Jesus says. Was Jesus referring to the woman's adultery? Or maybe she was colluding with the Pharisees. <laughs> we don't know. But either way, Jesus tells her, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. And so what's important for us to recognize, therefore, when we acknowledge the God who restores us, is that God's restoration is never intended for us to return to our state of brokenness. Let me say that again. That's very important. When God restores us, it is never for us to return to a life of sin and brokenness. That's never God's intention. Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So let me put it across differently. When God saves us and restores us, is not just for our good. It's really for us to be better than where we were previously. To live, to stop sinning, and to be better. When God restores us, it's not just for our good. It's to bring us better new creations. God's crucified sin that we might truly live. Again, Kintsugi, show you the picture. Look at those beautiful golden streaks. When God restores us, it is to make us better. And when God restores us, it is also His good pleasure and His good will that we might become co-partners to restore others. His restoration is not for us to keep His goodness to ourselves. No, never. It is for us to partner with Him to restore others. 
Remember the young boy I shared at the start of this sermon? Today he's an engineering graduate. He serves the Lord actively in his local church, reaching the next generation. I came from a broken family. You heard my story before. I was restored. God uses me to restore others. This young man, he's no longer a boy. He came broken, but through the process of restoration, now God uses him to restore others. And this is what it's always supposed to be as the church, as the people of God. We who are restored will restore others. If hurt people hurt people, <laughs> then restore people are the ones best place to restore others, to restore other people. And that is God's call for us as a church, for friends and help. It's a project, an ongoing project of restoration to invite those who are broken to come in to find restoration. But of course, we know in the meantime, it's a long process. A long transition process from being broken to be made whole. That kintsugi doesn't come about immediately. The porter, whoever is repairing it, takes time to put those pieces together. And surely, I'm sure, at some point they were cut too by those broken pieces. But they continue the work of restoration. And so, like those broken pieces, we who are broken, it takes time. And as we come into the family of God, we realize, oh, yo, why this guy's like that? Why this lady like that? Why I don't know, I'm still so broken. That's the reality. <laughs> it takes time to be fixed. And God has been patient with us. We must be patient with others as well. Restoration is not easy, but it's necessary. And those of us who are spiritually mature, I think the onus is on us to learn to be patient with those who are very broken so that they may be restored just as God has restored us. Let me close with a true account of a Christian whose journey of restoration probably resembles many of us. It is not a one-time event, but it's an ongoing process and even as Christians, we can fall and later on be restored. Have you heard of the hymn, Come thou fount of every blessing? Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace, streams of mercy, never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it. Mount of thy redeeming love. And jump to the last stanza. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Like thy goodness, like a fetter by my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to live the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for the courts above. We are familiar with this hymn, some of us. The author of this hymn, Robert Robinson, at some point in his life, he fell from grace. He lost the happy communion with the Savior he had once enjoyed. And in his declining years, he wandered into the byways of sin. As a result, he became deeply troubled in his spirit. Previously such a great hymn writer, but now fallen into sin again. Hoping to relieve his mind and his guilt, he decided to travel. In the course of his journey, he became acquainted with a young woman on spiritual matters. And she asked him what he thought of a hymn that she had just been reading. To his astonishment, he found it none other than his own composition. <laughs> he tried to evade her question, but she continued to press him for a response. And suddenly, Robert Robinson began to weep. With tears streaming down his cheeks, he said, I am the man that wrote that hymn many years ago. I'll give anything to experience again the joy I had when I wrote those words. Although she was greatly surprised, <laughs> the woman, she assured him that streams of mercy 
the very same words that he used are still available. Turning his wandering heart to the Lord, Mr. Robinson was deeply touched and restored to full communion, to full fellowship. Are we also looking for restoration? Is it a broken relationship? Is your spirit broken? Let's all come to Jesus, the one who bends down in humility and rewrites the stories of our lives with loving authority. Let Jesus restore us day by day. Let me close by reading a passage uh, just read from my own devotions this morning. I felt wow, so timely. God is wonderful. He's good. We planned this pulpit schedule quite in advance. And the daily uh, journal reading is also planned way in advance. But today, they coincide. <laughs> Isaiah 35. I'll just read the scripture text for us because I believe there's power in God's word itself. And this whole passage is a picture of restoration. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the, will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs, in the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. You see, when God restores, it is not for us to go back to sin. It is for holiness. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the word of God. Come, let us pray. Can I invite the music team up? I'm going to change uh, the closing song to the third song that you all sang just now. <laughs> is it Thank You for the Cross? Something like that. Worthy is the Lord. Let's sing that song instead. Come, let us pray. Jesus, indeed, we thank you that you are our wonderful restorer. And right now we come before you with our brokenness. It really doesn't matter how we were broken, whether by our own foolish choices or by the sins of others. We come just as we are. And Lord, we pray, as you minister to the woman in John chapter 8, you come as we sing this response song. You come and minister your grace, your healing, and your restoration in our lives. And Father, right now, I'll take authority in Jesus' name as well to declare that this place and this people, your people, shall be the place, shall be the people of restoration. We shall be your agents of restoration. Where the broken will be made whole, where the wounded made well. I declare this in Jesus' name.
Amen.